Hey guys, this is Alex, and welcome to the Two Dudes Brews Interviews Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking about the Safdie Brothers 2019 film, Uncut Gems. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing to the podcast, and maybe even tell your friends about us. With that being said, we hope you enjoy the show. thing that's been going on lately it's like 100 degrees in the oh today mass power outages over the last night i think there was about four thousand homes in the cincinnati area that had no power some people still don't have power i do thankfully yeah you didn't get power last night till 2 a.m we didn't know if we were gonna be able to do this today or not i was kind of scared man we watched i shouldn't say watch it's more like i experienced uh this <laughs> film that we're doing right now 2019 Uncut Gems by old Josh and uh, Ben Safdie. This is my recommendation. Yes, it was. I think since the inception of the podcast, I have been wanting to do one of the Safdie Brothers movies, you know, since then. And uh, here we are. Yeah, we watched a good time together. It's been a few months, probably two months or two or three months since we watched it. We watched it. Fucking, we probably started that shit at like 2 a.m. Oh, I bet. One night after the podcast. And boy, it's one of the best movies I've ever seen, and I never want to watch it again. <laughs> uh, I've seen it three times this year. I love that movie. It's just such a intense experience, very much similar to the one we had uh, for this film. I like this film. I also never want to watch it again. I Really? I opted out of like a, a true second watch today i uh, i had it on in the background while doing other things just to keep me fresh and keep it in my head although i wish it wouldn't live there that much i guess since adam sandler our boy jack and jill this is a great great role for him it's fucking oh, awesome absolutely dude. i know it was like specially curated for him as well and it took them forever to get him to sign off on it because I think they came to him before they even were going to film Good Time. Yeah, you're right. This movie was in the making for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. I think the Safties were fresh out of, out of film school. In 2009, they write one of their first major scripts. And I guess like the, the naive nature of a young 20-year-old, mm-hmm. they thought that, hey, let's get Adam Sandler to do this. Mm-hmm. And they're like no names. And so they did it. They tried to get a hold of him. And Sandler... He wouldn't even see him. So, like, I guess, like, the next several movies they made, like, Heaven Knows What, Daddy Long Legs, Good Time, it was all kind of, like, building up to this movie. Mm-hmm. I've watched some videos, like, interviews with them around 2015, and they're constantly talking about, yeah, we're working on this Diamond District movie. Mm-hmm. Like, we're trying to get this made. Uh, I believe that Sasha Baron Cohen was, at one point, uh... considered for the lead role. Uh, Jonah Hill was actually casted for the lead role, and... At some point, Adam Sandler saw the movie Good Time at a film festival, and he reached out to the Safdie brothers. Mm. It was on after that. Wow. That's kind of nuts. I could see Sasha Baron Cohen (laughs) doing it, dude. I could see him. I'm sure he would have been good in this role. Oh, for sure. But I think this movie is made so much more special by the fact that it's Adam Sandler. Mm Mm-hmm. And I guess like this uh, episode of us doing this is like a redemption Mm. in a way. It's been about a year since the Jack and Jill review. We shit all over that thing. I'll shit on it right now. I fucking hate that shit so much. It's one of the worst things I've ever watched. It fucking sucks, man. I hate Dunkin' Donuts more because of that movie. And that's like, first off, Dunkin' Donuts coffee, it's like creek water. It's, it's not good to begin with. It's all, It's like sugary creek water. It's not good. 
And the fact that it is even remotely close to that film makes me hate it even more. It's so weird that Sandler will come out of the woodwork every 10 to 15 years and just be like, hey, I can't act. (sighs) Fuck. You know, Rain Over Me is not the best movie in the world by any stretch of the means, but it is nice to see Adam Sandler take on a serious dramatic role which I think he does well in that movie. I think that movie, it's kind of in that weird gray area, almost like a no-no area that that films aren't supposed to enter into, which is a fictionalization of 9-11 or like events surrounding 9-11, which I think kind of already puts a movie at like a critical disadvantage as far as like reviewing goes. I'm getting flashbacks to the movie Remember Me. Remember Me with our boy (laughs) Rob Pat, which like, I think it's a great movie until the last two minutes. Well, I haven't seen it in forever. I can't say it's a great movie. I don't remember. Well, it. I'll say it holds it. It holds itself together until the last two minutes. Yeah, it jumps um, the shark completely. Mm-hmm. I feel like fictionalization of national tragedy, if you can call it that, whatever you want to fucking say, national tragedy, more like national operation, but fucking, <laughs> uh, I don't know. It kind of puts a it puts a film at a disadvantage out out of the gate. That movie's got, what, like Don Cheadle? Is that his name? Yeah, I think so. That's him, right? Adam Sandler, he's got the chops. He just doesn't, you know, he just doesn't do it very often. I mean, I kind of respect the guy for what he does. He has an automatic... Gets fucking paid. <laughs> yeah, he gets paid, man. Did you know that he has an automatic $20 million ask or, like, booking fee just to be in a movie? So... Wow. Yeah, $20 million. Wow. And I mean, like, most of what he's done is successful, as shitty as some of these movies are, he gets people in the theaters or he gets people to stream. But yeah, are you, what are you doing? Oh, I'm playing with our champagne that we have here. We're drinking um, a champagne called Black Girl Magic. Why do you choose champagne for tonight's episode? I wanted something elegant for our uh, fucking fugazi bullshit that we live in on this film. Okay. You might have to explain that as we go along. but Well, just like the movie set in the Diamond District, it's like a very... Um, a clubby movie it's set up in a god how do you put it like almost hedonistic world it's very glamorous and full of uh gucci and rolex and the movie's called uh, uncut gems which is uh the movie centered around our black ethiopian opal which this may be really random to you because it's really random to me but for a long time and i still really do i enjoy watching videos of people cut opals and i know like about the process that goes into it so, like, you know how in the movie the opal is surrounded by dirt almost? Like, yeah. hard sediment? Like, a lot of that stuff gets blasted away through, like, pressurized water. Mm-hmm. And they'll, and, like, they'll sand away. It's, uh, I can't remember, I can't remember what it's called. This doesn't help that, like, we started drinking earlier and then ate. And now my brain's pushing really hard to get into the vocabulary. But, yeah, it's anyway. Right. I'm really into watching people cut opals and like they're much, much smaller than the one that's in this, uh, in the film. But that particular rock would, you would lose a good 30% of what it is. And like, it's not cut, it's uncut. It's an uncut gem. So it's, uh, it, the whole movie centered around this, uh, this rock and the movie opens up in with Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. You know, this, uh, this movie was on framed the other day. It was, I got it on, on the, the first, first try. try. Because it's that opening uh, uh-huh. opening scene. You know, coming back to it after the events of the movie unfold, you realize that I'm I'm almost positive that these dudes got this guy injured on purpose. Mm, how do you mean? Because that guy comes out. And he's got like the leg injury. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about a couple of dudes in Ethiopia have to get paid to get this rock out. 
and they have to go back into the mine after this dude comes out because people exit the mines. There's like a big mob. There's mm-hmm. almost like this Chinese big wig there on the... Uh, He's like the boss, the boss of this man. operation. Mm-hmm. And they sneak back in to get this rock out. And I'm thinking, oh, these dudes were ready for this guy to get hurt. Oh, I didn't even think about this. Like they have to have an opportunity to get out. And like maybe he voluntarily got injured and he got part of the paycheck. You know what I mean? It's little things like that. Bitch, I watched this movie once. What you doing over there? I just didn't even consider it. <laughs> I thought it was making some kind of commentary on just like... That life. The work environment oh, of yeah. working in a mine. You know, they actually filmed this in South Africa mm. in a real uh, secretly active mine. Somewhere where I guess people weren't supposed to be drilling or chipping away at the rocks. Mm-hmm. Very dangerous. And they led the Safdie brothers into like this one spot that quote unquote might have been safe. Mm. And they had to very lightly chisel away at this prop that they had placed there. I watched the... These dudes got balls. They do. This is one of the few films that I've listened to the, the commentary by the directors. Mm. I was trying to find it because I bought it on Vudu, but it didn't come with like the featurettes underneath for mm. some reason. And I was like trying to find that shit. How'd you get a hold of it? YouTube, baby. Ah. It was very informative too. Uh, if you've ever like seen or listened to them talk about movies, they were like very passionate. Oh, good. And like every scene that they covered in the commentary, they had a lot to say about everything. Before we get too deep into it, you've seen Good Time. How would you describe like the Safdie style now that you've seen like both of these movies? Anxiety and claustrophobic. Absolutely. Cerebral, uncomfortable, not many or if any redeemable qualities in any character throughout <laughs> any of their films. From what I can tell, because you've seen Kinda. you've seen bits of uh Heaven, Heaven Knows, Knows what. what. Yeah. And that movie is about heroin, or at least it's set around just junky lifestyle. I feel like they take subjects that don't want to be touched like filthy parts of society and they like want to elevate it to the screen and i know they're from new york and i know they probably have a good way to like shadow that into and reflect that into their work obviously like this movie set in new york it's in the diamond district that stuff's really interesting to me but it just feels so scummy and so dirty and raw even though it may be hyperbole it feels grounded and you the characters feel real like in good time rob pat his character is just the worst human being he puts his brother which is like mentally handicapped and he puts him in these awful terrible dangerous situations he only thinks about himself the weird thing about that character is he's like kind of driven by this misconstrued uh idea of love like, he does a lot of terrible things to get his brother out of that situation, but he's, like, fucking up everybody else's life. Mm-hmm. And I think Howard, the character of this movie, is very similar. Although I think I find myself uh, having an easier time rooting for Howard than I do Nick, I, I think, is the character, uh, Rob Pat's character in mm-hmm. Good Time. I find it easier to root for Howard in this movie. I mean, he's got, like, a family life, and, like, you get these little glimpses of he might be a decent father, when he's outside of the Diamond District, he's mm-hmm. got something going on. I might disagree with you, actually. I really? think those things make him even more of a piece of shit okay. because he has more responsibility. I feel, dude, the guy's getting about to get divorced. They haven't told their kids yet. 
He sleeps with like a trashy girl in an apartment that he's paying for. Treats his employees like shit. He can't close a deal. He steals money from his family. Places unrealistic bets with money he doesn't have. Our boy Nick just robbed a fucking... uh, (laughs) Just some random bank. Random bank and fucking... uh, Well, I mean... I think him putting his brother in harm's way is the the bad part. He yeah. he ruins a guy's mental health for the rest of his life by pouring LSD all over him. Uh, he makes out with like a sixteen year old. Yep. At some point, God damn and, it. and gets her arrested. Okay. There's nothing redeemable about either of these. Yeah, characters. these are these are shit characters, but you, like in the best way. You do root for them because the films are set up in just the environment of chaos to begin with. And they're your main characters, so you watch them obviously go through their conflict in the story, and you know things are set up around them. But they're pieces of shit, and you hate them but love them at the same time. And honestly, in both of the films, I didn't know what was going to happen. Both times, I'm like, I don't know how this ends. And here's my first big comment. When I watched the film for the first time, the first hour felt like two. I mean, that first hour starts chaos so fast. I thought the pacing in the first hour was faster than the second. All these mm-hmm. like major beats I felt like were happening really, really fast. And then I felt like probably between <laughs> an hour to an hour and a half, things cooled off for Howard. Like things started to settle back down. You know, he, he finally gets his hands back on the opal. He's not being led around by people saying they have the dime or the opal and he's not running from party to party or place to place. It felt like things were under control until that last half hour where mm. things pick back up again. In good time, it was like a constant, steady pace. I mean, I think it settles down when he gets to the apartment with the young girl and stuff and all that shit, but it really does pick back up because they go and they go inside that amusement park. I just thought like the major conflict to set up the story all happens within that hour and then it settles down and picks back up in that last. But I felt like I was my my asshole was tighter during the first hour. <laughs> it just felt so it felt so much more claustrophobic at least from scene to scene. Hmm. Because I feel like a lot of the family stuff happens in the back half. He goes to like the play and just stuff like that. I'm having a hard time deciding if I agree or disagree with you because I feel like the first hour absolutely does. What you said it goes by as if like the first hour is 2 hours. It just was so intense. I mean, I couldn't believe it. It had only been an hour. Mm, okay. Because I think the second hour might go even faster. I know you have like that scene at like the, the Jewish Passover mm-hmm. and all that where like it does... No, you- the second... I'm saying the second half goes by faster. I'm saying like the, oh, first, okay. the first hour just felt like an entire film squeezed <laughs> into one hour. Like it just felt so jam-packed. And then that second half of the film, mm-hmm. it just felt like it opened opened up a lot more and like things were cooling off. I think it might have something to do with like the fact that Howard is very trapped in a situation for the first hour mm-hmm. and there's like no hope of getting out of it. Yes. And then like you as like the audience member kind of feels trapped with him. Well, and that's the thing. I I thought, okay, how is this going to ramp up from here? 
because that at the hour mark, I'm thinking there's no way it can go any more off the rails. Like I thought people were going to have to start dying. Like like shots were going to have to be fired. Like people were going to have to be held hostage. Just stuff like with the family. Like the family was introduced and I didn't know like the outcome of their story. I'm like, is somebody going to go hold his family hostage? Is something going to happen to one of his children? And then finding out like his brother-in-law pot i believe it is is like the guy he was stealing money from yeah was this like a big revelation to you because i saw this in theaters in 2019 oh did you really i did because it came out on at, at netflix too right it was like available for streaming correct it was available on netflix from 2020 to 2022 okay uh this was the last movie i saw in theaters before like COVID hit okay um i remember like being mind blown because throughout the film you kind of think like okay arno is like this big mobster type guy Mm -hmm. like he's dangerous and you come to find out that it's not that at all he's family he's like introduced over the phone as well so it like kind of helped create that separation it was with that i had like a big revelation it was with what's her name julia julia her real name's julia right it is Julia Fox? Is that her name? Yeah, in real life. Yeah. Dated Kanye for a little bit. Oh, did they? I think so. Uh, dude, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't, don't care. I don't fucking shit. care. I just thought, I think, <laughs> I think that's right. Uh, I don't give a fuck what Kanye no, does. No, of course not. All. I love him, but fuck you. All right. Uh, <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> uh, I didn't realize she was the love interest because like, she works at the store. Mm. She works at Howard's showroom. And I didn't pick up on that until later. I was like, wait, no, wait, this bitch works here. Because uh, she was already, like, introduced in the showroom and everything. And, like, she was in the apartment. But I didn't put the faces together at all. Yeah, and she's done up a lot more mm-hmm. when she's at the showroom. Not to mention she, like, is talking to Kevin Garnett and, like, trying to get Kevin Garnett's number. So I, like, framed her as just an employee. Like, and- flirting to get mm-hmm. the sale. And that's all I thought. I And then I'm thinking like, oh, wait, no, wait. She works at the showroom. This is Howard's fucking mistress, his fucking affair. Oh, okay. She's hitting <laughs> on The weekend. She's hitting on Kevin Garnett. And then I feel like her character was revealed more in the back half as well. Mm-hmm. Like she came out more as a piece of shit, which like I thought she was kind of like an untouchable character for a while. I thought like she was just somebody that you know howard uh used to fuck up his life and it wasn't like a big deal that they were together but turns out like she's a piece of crap too you know i didn't really get the vibe that she was a piece of shit mm. really yeah no nah, she's a piece of shit <laughs> i mean if i had to like get one line of dialogue from her that like would confirm her as a piece of shit is when she says to howard in like the opening credits like it's not my fault you had kids mm. and i thought that was kind of hard-hitting Well, I thought her character, I knew she was a piece of shit when she talks to Howard, when Howard breaks down in his office and she gets the tattoo on her ass. Yeah. Dude, she's like fake crying, like, oh, so my life. She starts making it about her when, Uh I don't think she she even knows how deep Howard is Uh into like the shit that he's into. Now, don't get me wrong, like, she serves a great vessel for the second half of the film, like, with, mm. we'll get there, but, you know, that makes her character more important, but, yeah, she's a piece of shit, too, man, like, she, when Howard's mad at her for having people over in the apartment partying, 
And she's like, are you going to be mad at me or are you going to come get some snuggles? And it's like, mm. hot to cold mm-hmm. really quickly. Yeah, dude, this is something I kind of want to talk about. I think this is a characteristic that's like gone across all three Safdie Brothers movies I've seen. But you get all of the story beats and the central conflict kind of shown to you before the opening credits even hit, really. Good Time was like that, for sure. Yeah. That's the only one I've seen besides this. Heaven Knows What is like this, too. Because all the all the stuff happens at the, before the, like, the title rolls in that one as well, right? Because like, it's uh, based off true events, right? Yeah, that one is. It's based on the... The, the lead woman's real life mm. it, it's almost as if you're watching the end of another movie like you're watching the climax of some other movie and you're just like in it immediately mm-hmm. it's like oh okay like we're just thrown into this this person's life right away oh man dude it's fucking anxiety from the get-go in this one like i obviously like the ethiopian open like the the mine opens up the the film but just like all the shit in the showroom I think the sound design and the camera work really sell the claustrophobia because it's constant. Like I, I watched this film with headphones on and I noticed at many times in the sound design, it was like multiple layers of dialogue mixed around. Like you'd have somebody talking to a customer in the showroom and other people's dialogue off in the background. And they were like on their own channel, crystal clear, just on like one side of the speaker. And if I pulled my headphone off, they'd stop talking. And it, I just noticed like in the buzzing of the jewelry, like because they have to buzz the door open in the uh, the showroom. Mm-hmm. That's like, like, a, like a running the theme throughout the movie. buzzing is so obnoxious. <laughs> and like not to say that it's like annoying. It's it, meant to it's grate meant, your nerves. It's so, ooh, it, it really helps amp like the viewer up. For the constant chaos. And not to mention the camera's always up in someone's fucking face. You brought up all the extra conversations in scenes, like the in the sound design. When I was listening to the commentary, they were talking about how most movies they will ADR things in and it's usually used to like fix dialogue that's not uh listenable or you can't make certain words out. And when a director hands in the script for ADR, it's about two to three pages. <laughs> Now, when the Safties handed in the script for ADR in this movie, it was 65. Oh, my God. And it's because they added in all those extra conversations to make scenes so much more unbearable. Okay. Makes sense. And I think that's brilliant. You know, shot structure-wise, there's very few moments where I feel like we're pulled off away from our characters. Um, I think establishing shots are about the only thing that do that. Even those are almost non-existent in these movies. And the only times I can think of them are like when Howard goes to pawn off Kevin Garnett's ring. When he walks into that pawn shop or whatever it is, another jewelry store, it's like from the ceiling and you get to watch. And like, it's also, it alleviates a little bit of the anxiety from that previous scene because there's like seven people, everyone's talking and it's all like a bunch of nonsense, uh, hood shit. Like people just like jabbering off like man fuck you doing howard like you fucking (laughs) you know what i mean it's just like this constant barrage of just petty insult and chest puffing where that gets super annoying and then it's in that showroom it's allowed it's it's claustrophobic and when that scene lets up and he's going to pawn off that ring it's like the soundtrack even lightens up it's like howard's fucking strolling in he's happy as can be that he's about ready to get rid of this ring and the shot pulls off and it's like 
this showroom is like pretty chill. Like these two guys, are like how are you been, man? Oh, they're they're buddy buddy with Howard. Like Howard's showroom is probably the only one on Forty Seventh Street that is as chaotic as it is. I bet most of these other guys have it together way more than than he does. Oh well, they're not getting fucking slapped across the face in the middle of a showroom. Uh huh. I think it's a a crazy <clears throat> character revelation or relevation, I should say. Revelation. Where the first time that you realize Howard is a shithead is when Kevin Garnett gives him the ring for on collateral. Loan mm-hmm. For collateral. And he is right out the door on his way to that pawn shop. And that's when the audience goes, Oh, mm-hmm. that's who this guy is. And you kind of know, like the movie establishes that he has many pre-existing debts outside of the one that he has to Arno, which mm-hmm. I guess is like the main plot device for this movie. Because he has many other people come visit him and ask him for money throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. But we only care about that one because they have the the real heavy-handed enforcers behind him. They follow him. They go to like his daughter's play. Ah, uh, dude. I think they're in every scene almost. Yeah, they like hang out in the background. They're like a constant pressure on the plot. I think just with that knowledge, obviously knowing how the film ends, I don't know if much would change for our character, even if this original plot problem was solved. That's what I'm thinking too. Which like helps me not feel so bad for Howard. I I think he as a character is unredeemable in a way. And I can't help but feel, especially like with the stuff with his wife and his kids. And I'm like, yeah, man, you fucking blew it. You blew it. There's no redeeming his family life. He's looking for like this big hit. He like wants to bet big and hit big and make it big. But like, I don't know why he needs it. You know, like he's got like a nice house, good looking wife. It makes me wonder about like what this character was before the movie, technically speaking, Mm -hmm. because I think at some point he wasn't the like the gambling addict Mm -hmm. or the adrenaline junkie that he comes out to be. He had to have had like a more straightforward life, maybe like two or three years before this movie takes place. Part of me wonders if like the whole Julia affair added the chaotic element to his life where like he's trying to hold on to youth and like hit big bets get rich as fuck real fast even though like i'm pretty sure he has a fine life outside of it he drives a mercedes Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) like that's all you really need to know i think maybe that added to him like getting deep with like the sharks like you know taking on money he couldn't handle like betting away money he didn't have the guy probably was behind on his mortgage or some shit. You know what I mean? We don't get to see like a family finance life, but like the if the guy can't pay back his brother-in-law, like is he going to be able to pay back like uh, a fucking mortgage loan or and just stuff like that where I'm thinking his wife is leaving him for a very specific reason and it probably is Julia, yeah, but like something has gone awry where he's just not he's he made a mistake somewhere and he now he's just trying to wrap up the chaos with more chaos. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what what he could have done at this point. And I know the film's not about that to an extent. I think it really just kind of wraps up the story in a situation rather than like a, a life or a... Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not like this big spanning thing Mm-mm. over years. Like I think this movie only takes place over... A couple weeks, maybe. 
I think it's like a week. Because mm. you see him in the first Friday scene, to Monday, right? It's Friday to Monday, I'm pretty sure, mm. which is crazy. And he dies on the Monday, mm. Monday night. A lot happens in that span of time. Yeah, it does. And, and you know that he's been living like that for a while prior to that. Yeah, fuck. God damn it, Howard. <laughs> I just found this today uh, on accident. You know the guy that comes into Howard's office and he's like, Howard, I've been working for you for fucking years, you fucking... Yussie. Dude, that guy's a real-life Diamond District guy. Oh, I knew that. Yeah, he has like a YouTube channel and shit. I didn't know that. Dude, most of the actors in this movie are real-life 47th Street Diamond District people. That was really cool. I was like, oh, that's awesome. I think when Howard shows up at the showroom and the collectors are getting kicked out by KG's like security and that one guy comes out and he's like we all stop yelling in the hall like that mm-hmm. that guy is a, a diamond district guy um the safety brothers tend to use non-actors mm-hmm. in their movies a lot well they probably use a real domino's manager for that domino's. i would almost guarantee <laughs> yeah. it the fedex driver that brings the opal mm-hmm. to his office is the fedex driver that actually does that route oh, on that awesome. street and on the commentary track, they were talking about this, and they said that guy had never missed a day of work in 30 years working for FedEx, but he missed a day of work to play himself oh my God. in this movie. That's awesome. I love shit like that. The pawn guys that he sells KG's ring to, they work at that store. Mm. Like That shit is so cool. Julia Fox, not an actor before this. The Enforcers, they're, um, the Safties described it as this when describing the, the main antagonist in the movie. And they said in real life, he's from New Jersey and he kind of had a background like this. Mm. And when he would tell them stories, he would usually leave them off without details and say, let's just leave it at that uh. because he's done some shit. Uh. And he's great in this movie. Oh, yeah. He's that fucking, guy's fucking scary. Absolutely. He almost seems like he's made to play in mob movies uh, in hey, general. Man, he's got a nice shirt on when he uh, first shows up to the show. Am I like that blue powder blue shirt? Man, I was fucking digging that shit. That guy looked dapper as shit. I respected that shit. That's a big <laughs> thing that happens in this film, too. They're like, there's good uh, good fashion. Like, the people are looking, looking clean. It's like they're on the way to the fucking championship game, you know? Howard just casually tosses Yussi his, like, $500 Gucci shirt. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, just take this. Speaking of Yussi, I love the scene where he's threatening Howard to quit, and he's like, man, I, I can't deal with this shit no more. And Howard is, like, paying him no attention. He's getting the opal out of the box and cutting out of the fish. And, like, Yussi's diatribe basically becomes background noise, and Howard just looks at him and says, holy shit, I'm gonna come. <laughs> <laughs> I, I died laughing and I was like, come on, man. Yeah, Howard's a piece of shit. Oh, God, he's a piece of shit. Yeah, fuck him, but like I love him at the same time. I want to see him get out of the situation. That was my big thing. I didn't know how the loop was going to be broken. It felt like he was in a loop. He was going to be stuck in the loop, and I didn't know how he was going to escape the situation. I think part of the reason that the movie gave me so much anxiety is because you really know so little about the situation itself. He loans Kevin Garnett the opal because he's got it's got magic powers. Man, I feel this shit gonna <laughs> He can't get the opal back and his character knows nothing. It feels like he can't trust 
the people closest to him, his girlfriend, his wife shuts him out. Damani's got him running in circles. I'm thinking like I immediately my whole my whole spiel was is like Howard's gonna go off the rails and like kill Damani or some shit because mm. Damani's gonna like bring back a fake or something like bring back a different opal because like well kevin said he wanted to keep this one and so he bought this one for you know what i mean i okay like damani and him had such beef and i'm thinking dude damani is gonna stab this guy in the back and when he gets the opal back and howard's inspecting it i immediately thought oh this is like not the same opal like i bet this isn't even gonna be the same opal like i bet damani fucking sold the opal and brought him back a fucking fake or you know something it just felt like howard was so chaotic and he was so off the rails and didn't know how to reel in a situation that i i immediately thought I don't know how how anything's ever going to get resolved, ever. Mm, like, it'd be, like, this endless loop. Like, I thought it would end up, like, good time where, from start to finish, things ramp up into a chaotic, climactic ending. And they do, to an extent, don't get me wrong. But I felt like the major conflict was within that hour, and I didn't know how you were going to step outside of it, if, how mm. anything was going to be resolved. It's funny you say that, like considering, uh, or should I say, comparing this to Good Time and stuff. I find this movie to actually have more of a, and I, I say this with the slightest sense of the word, a more traditional movie-like structure mm. where there is more elements that kind of play into like typical, you know, movie structures. Uh, like where, rising action, like exposition rising act. you know what I mean? Yeah, where Good Time was like relentless in its pacing, and this movie does give time to kind of give you that second act low point where mm -hmm. you can breathe for at least five to ten minutes. I think it really is like a good 15 to 20 in this one. Yeah, you might be right, too. That Passover scene does last for a little while. Mm -hmm. Going back to Damani... I don't blame you for thinking that he would come back with like a fake opal because I think his character is the hardest to read in the mm -hmm. entire movie. I still have no idea what goes on, like why he lies to Howard and says, hey man, I got the opal. And then he meets with Howard and says, sorry man, I ain't got it. KG has it. I think part of uh, his character too is that he was like an intermediary for Howard to sell his... To sell shit to people. Their deal was, I'll sell you, or I'll bring people in to sell stuff, and you sell my watches, which they were fake. They were fake watches. But he was younger than Howard. He had connections to people. At the weekend's private show, and I'm pretty sure he's with another rapper. And he's I think with a probably, few. Yeah, and, and they're probably real rappers, and I have no idea who the fuck they are. But. It was Trinidad James mm. at the club. Do you remember his, yeah. his big hit? Goal up all of my watch. Yeah, yeah fuck you <laughs> don't believe me just watch <laughs> uh i think the other rapper was cash out who i don't remember this movie takes place in 2012 so that uh, might have been like a, a blip on the radar i gotcha but uh his character he was younger and i think his whole thing was i gotta look cool i gotta look cool around my connections and howard's like this old dumb fuck <laughs> and he like cramps my style but why is he telling howard that he has the opal unless he's just trying to shut him up and get him to quit calling because mm. you know damani in these situations he's working with fucking kevin garnett who was like a all-star player at the time and he probably couldn't like beg for the rock back 
Like mm-hmm. if if KG really wanted to, the rock, well, like they're in the finals, like yeah, the NBA they, finals. Are they in a like a conference game? You know what? I don't know anything about the NBA. Okay, so <laughs> how it works is that they'll play they'll play a conference game. It's like the Super Bowl, like or the NFL, where like you'll do like like AFC versus NFC. So you'll have an AFC championship and an NFC championship, and the winner of those games will play in the Super Bowl. So it's like two conferences. Okay. And so it's either A, a conference game, or B, a finals game, because it's multiple games in a series. It's like best of seven. He's in the mid, like, because he shows up, and like, they're like, we got to go. Like, we got to get it, like, get in and get out. Even when Kevin Garnett shows up to the auction and even shows up back to Howard's office, it's like he gets out of a black SUV. And it's like, we got to get in and get out. We got to get back to practice or we got to get back to the stadium. It's like, he's on a tight schedule, this guy. And they're in their middle of a finals game. And so Damani's not going to like wear Kevin Garnett out about this stupid fucking rock yeah. that Kevin Garnett likes in the first mm-hmm. place. Howard's auction doesn't mean shit to Kevin Garnett. And it doesn't mean shit to him because he wants to just buy it from him. He's like, I'll pay you what they're going to pay you. My guy said it'd be like 175 and Howard refuses. And that was one of the most frustrating things too, is because the conflict could have been resolved multiple times throughout the film where I'm sitting here thinking like, here's your chance, step away. And he kept digging the hole for himself. Well, he didn't want to be even. He wanted to come out on top. And that is like endlessly frustrating. A lot of this could have been solved if when Damani and Howard show up at the Celtics like practice center, Damani was going to take him straight to the back room. But Howard, in typical like Adam Sandler man-child fashion, mm-hmm. has to like steal a basketball and go shoot a hoop. Because mm-hmm. I've seen this a few times and I've noticed this because I remember this scene kind of confused me. The second Howard starts fucking around... That's when Damani makes the run to mm-hmm. that that hallway. Yeah, he like is given a side eye, like fuck this guy. I'm just gonna go in. God, it's so frustrating, man. Uh huh. It adds to that sense of mystery to that character as well because it feels like Damani is putting him on a wild goose chase. So again, you said his character is super hard to read, and I mm-hmm. I still don't really know his deal. Like, what the fuck? No, neither do I. And, like, maybe he's just been fucking conned and ran around by Howard so much that he doesn't give a fuck anymore because, you know, his watches aren't in that fucking safe anymore Yeah, near the end of the film. I'd like to believe that the first watch that the Lone Sharks take off him is probably one of Damani's watches. Mm -hmm. And the one that he gives to those, like, ugly, mullet-headed-looking old men is probably one of his as well. Come on, Howard, want your money. Come on, Howard. (laughs) Come on, Howard, he said he wanted. Come on, time's up. I find that scene really funny because he says, is this your heavy? And it's just like an exact replica of the Uh guy. One of the things that I want to talk about is the family aspect of the movie. Mm -hmm. Kind of Howard's relationship with his wife, his two sons, and his daughter. And a lot of this stuff is done in a very subtle manner. I guess this this plays out in two major scenes. And the first one is the play Mm -hmm. that his daughter's in. And then the second one's the Passover. After the play, when Howard's in the kitchen talking to his wife, and he's like, barbecue chicken for dinner, and his daughter cold comes shoulder, in. Cold shoulder, dude. Cold uh, shoulder. He gets the cold shoulder from his wife and his daughter, mm-hmm. and I kind of get the vibe that his daughter is old enough to realize the bullshit that mm-hmm. he's up to, because she just does- makes comments, too, like, oh, I'm going out to this thing, 
you know, I'll be out till 3 a.m. It's just one of those things that I have to do. You know how it goes. And she just goes, whatever, and, like, walks away. Now, well, I, he even, like, everything all right? Like, he's trying to do, like, a check-in with his daughter. I got that sense, that vibe, too, that the daughter has picked up on the fact that his parents, or her parents are about to get divorced. Yeah. And, like, her dad's a piece of shit and, like, cheated on his mom. Because, like, look, girls pick up on that shit way more than guys do. It's just in their nature. When, uh, <laughs> but... It feels like she had already given up on him, and he was probably a lot closer to his boys than he was his daughter. He might have had a hold on his daughter at some point, but she wised up mm. when she got old enough. The younger son, who like doesn't really play much of a part in this movie, his younger son is like too young to be corrupted mm-hmm. by the whole situation. It's the most interesting when it comes to like the middle-aged boy... Because when Howard puts his son down to bed in his all uh, souped up race car bed that has like LED (laughs) lights. Howard's watching the game on his phone with headphones on. He's like flipping off the phone and going, (laughs) fuck you, ref, which I found really funny. Uh But he goes to his like middle son's bedroom and he's like, God, these kids, they got so much shit, dude. He's got like a full wall and like a a Mm. basketball hoop in his room. But you start to learn that his son is kind of into betting too, Mm -hmm. which I found to be very shocking. It's not something you really see, like little kids being corrupted to the extent of the sins of their parents Mm -hmm. in this way. Yeah, he was mentioned to his son that he, that, oh yeah, well your dad's got big money on this one. Their relationship takes a turn for the worst during the scene where he's taking them home from the Passover and his son has to take a shit. And they take him up to the apartment where Howard's like second place is. And Howard's son finds out that he has a side woman. Mm-hmm. It's just shown in his face. Dude. It's just the kid's face. Kid actors, like most of the time, I think suck really bad. But this <laughs> yeah. kid did the facial mannerisms really well. Just like in shock. Just to showcase his like discontempt for his father. That scene in particular, the knocking door to door, felt the most like good time to me. Oh yeah, where definitely. It felt like a little bit more of a a non situation that they just display. Like it's such an odd thing to do to knock on a neighbor's door for a kid to use the bathroom. Yeah, that just that reminded me a ton of that film. And then yeah, I just thought that kid was like destined to grow up like his father just based off the way he had acted before. Absolutely. And it seemed like that probably was the kid that he was the closest to as well. It just, that shit, like Howard seemed like he was close to his family too, like in the, in the the during the Passover and stuff. Like, I believe it's his father or father-in-law. His father-in-law likes him a lot. Yeah. They're all shooting the shit, smoking cigars, watching the game. And I felt like, God, Howard, how would you fuck this shit up? This looks awesome. I think the Passover scene is one of my favorites of the movie. Mm-hmm. Not to mention you get like the conflict with Arno as well. Yeah, this is where you get the realization that mm-hmm. he is who he is. Mm-hmm. I found it interesting that Howard has to read off out of the, is it the Torah? I believe so. Is that the, the book of Judaism? I believe so, yes. But he has to read about the plagues. Mm-hmm. And I find it ironic because Howard is kind of like a plague himself. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of a clever little thing. This- I really enjoyed the line where he says... Death of the firstborn. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, you got to be careful. That can still happen. Kind of makes me wonder if there's like hidden connotation here mm-hmm. where like maybe Howard's the firstborn out of mm-hmm. his side. I think it added to like talking about like these 
basically like God smiting down sinners and uh, talking about plagues and locusts and sacrifices and all this shit, I think helped add a little bit of the ominous feel uh, because you get the realization that Arno is family, but he's also like a major antagonist. So I feel like it helped add tension to the scene as well. You find out that he's kind of an outcast in this family. Mm -hmm. He's not Jewish and gooey i guess is the name of the the Uh father-in-law character he says something like well he didn't marry your daughter and you kind of get the vibe that like arno is like maybe a little bit of a piece of shit too i don't know i think the standout scene within this passover is the one-on-one with sandler and his wife yeah and i think this is like really heavy at least like it might be the most emotionally heavy scene of the movie man i think it really shows the full display of Howard's pity where his wife is quite literally laughing in his face at his like cowardice and pity and I find that extremely gratifying for her character (laughs) yeah and for the audience you're the most annoying person I've ever met (laughs) and I would be perfectly fine if I never saw you again like and then she doesn't (laughs) correct yeah man it uh i think her character too is a little bit of the bring back down to earth vessel for the story when she sees him naked in the back seat or excuse me (coughs) in the trunk of the mercedes after arno and his goons beat the shit out of him and leave him naked in the trunk of his car which first off that scene so claustrophobic so intense literally the camera work is just up in people's faces chaos just the look that she gives him not even a word just the look of like disbelief and pity is very gratifying as an audience member to recognize hey just remember this guy that we're rooting for is a piece of shit in that scene where he's in the trunk i get the sense that she is seen worse out of him this is not out of the ordinary it's just like here we go again it's mm-hmm. nothing like, Howard, are you okay? What happened? Mm-mm. No questions, dude. Ah, it's so great, man. I love s- subtle storytelling like this. Show don't tell. I got a comment for you. Okay, what's that? I really love a lot of the lighting in this film where I couldn't help but notice and feel like there was so much um, reflectiveness. How do I put it? Rim lighting and how much I felt like things echoed what it's like to be underneath a display case. Oh, that's a good way to put it, man. Uh, That's great. Just like Howard's glasses would catch light underneath on like the lower parts of the lenses. And then it was like so much of this like blue LED lights, like harsh lighting top down, especially like the scene when he has Kevin Garnett in his office and Kevin finally buys the opal from him. That scene particular like made it feel like that. Yeah, it just kind of felt like you were, like, and obviously you were set in, like, diamond shops, like, jewelry stores and all these things, and it's set up on 47th Street, but just things were echoed in a way, lighting-wise, where it felt like things were on display, and I don't know, it might be a little bit of a stretch to put it that way, but I couldn't help but feel, like, harsh, cool lighting being cast on our characters, I think another big scene that I think is lit super well and I think really helps for me stand out um, a good use of costume design and 
Oh, are we talking the club scene? We're talking the club scene. Composition-wise, when Howard is staring at Julia, Julia is dressed in white underneath the black light, and no other character is dressed so harshly. The only other one is Damani with his orange hoodie. fluorescent orange hoodie. That was really fucking smart. And I appreciate it a lot. And I immediately was thinking when he's staring at Julia through the crowd of people with she has like almost like a a long sleeve bralette shirt. I don't know. My wife is going to she's not my wife, but you know what I mean? She's going to fucking tear me up if she heard me. She'd be like, you fucking idiot. It's this. Thanks, babe. Anyway, no other female and no other character is dressed in clothing that would make them appear on that composition. Because immediately to her right is like a group of gals like just sitting there talking. And I'm like, this was really, really smart to help bring the eye to this character. And same with Damani with the orange hoodie. I don't think it's a stretch to say that this was all intentional no, at all. Like For sure, for sure. I think every... It was super smart. Every single scene in this movie is probably very meticulously crafted. Mm-hmm. That display case lighting... It's in Howard's house. It's in his apartment. It's in the mm-hmm. club. It's everywhere you go. Yeah, dude. Speaking of the club scene, did you ever think you'd see a movie where Adam Sandler and The Weeknd fight? <laughs> like, brawl it out? Maybe like in Jack and Jill 2 or... uh oh, Jack and Jill 2. <laughs> I'm waiting for Jack and Jill 2. Don't put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. I'm going to fucking manifest Jack and Jill 2. It's coming. It's very odd seeing The Weeknd, who's like a mega superstar nowadays be in this small club atmosphere with the old school dreadlocks. He's performing the song the morning. Mm -hmm. I loved that dude. This is bringing me back to like senior year of high school when I was like like obsessed with him. It was like a time capsule. Absolutely. Like the hair, everything. I also really love the scene where after Howard and Julia leave the club and they're arguing he gets in the in the cab and of course it's very chaotic because they're screaming at each other but the movie takes this weird side note to follow julia for like a minute Mm -hmm. straight and you get this long tracking shot where she's walking back to the club and she's kind of getting like the walk of shame Mm -hmm. people in line are commenting stupid bitch like what are you looking at and she says nothing much Uh i don't know what purpose it really serves in terms of themes and stuff, but I think it was great that we got this small moment with her. Mm-hmm. I like, too, that it was pretty much just her and the sound of her heels hitting the sidewalk. The music gets really angelic during this point, too. Uh-huh. It becomes very, like, choir-focused. Mm-hmm. Something we didn't talk about a whole lot so far is, like, the soundtrack. It was a little bit all over the place at uh, some points for me. Like, sometimes, like, strings would come in, and it felt, like, less techno than I thought it was going to be. I think I incorrectly told you a week ago that the soundtrack was not done by the same guy from Good Time. And is that not true? It is. It is done by him. It's uh, an electronic artist by the name of One O Tricks Point Never. And he's kind of known for like chaotic electronic composition. I think in Good Time, it was very like cohesive. There was very much of like an underlining chaotic theme with the music that he brought to that movie. And in this one, it's way more varied. Like, mm-hmm. you are getting choirs, keys, strings, and and that's all on top of, like, the usual synthesizer, like, 80s aesthetic that it kind of goes for. I want to say that I enjoy the variety in this movie more than in Good Time, but Good Time was consistently more 
I gotta like know. The, the pace was set a lot more. How do you put it? The pace was a little bit more heavy handed in that film where the soundtrack really pushed that film along. And in this one, it felt like it gave more time to breathe with stuff like that, like using yeah. choir or strings. I noted earlier when, when he walks in to sell Kevin Garnett's ring, the soundtrack lightens up, gives you a minute of relief after that chaos. It's almost like the same, where she's walking back after this chaotic scene, and it lightens up. And things get easier. And actually the film settles down after that scene a little bit. I want to talk about a few scenes in particular. Let's do it. We're getting close to the end here. Man, like the auction scene, there was actually one spot in this auction scene where I thought they missed the mark a little bit. Oh, okay. Do tell. Well, like the whole setup was, okay, we are gonna bet we're gonna we're gonna bid against kevin and you're gonna raise the price for me which is already like a great way to set up anxiety going into the auction that auction gets super tense and i love like this back and forth between face to face adam sandler shaking his head and his father-in-law like reluctantly throwing up this bid i love that you get like kevin garnett's presume as his a manager or some kind of financial advisor yeah you get like her talking in, chiming in. You get like a, a relaxed auctioneer or a, what do you call those? That's an auctioneer. Yeah. How about how about give me get a <laughs> guy was really chill. He was more like, sir, back to you. Very nice. But <laughs> I, I bid you well, sir. I thought they really did not let resolution of the fact that his father won the his father in law won the auction. It was more like. It felt like it was trying to be comedic relief because it's like a fast cut to like sold. I guess the scene didn't have as much weight to me. And I think it's one of those parts that I think helps soften up the back half of the film. But it felt a little bit more aimless to me. Like I wish it was more like you had to let the moment sink in. Like Howard's realization, like the father-in-law, it felt mm-hmm. like it like was like sold, and then they're walking out of the auction. Like he's got the opal in hand, and I'm like, and then he's immediately like jabbering off, like oh, I'll, I'll make this better. I wanted there to be like weight to it a little bit more. I just felt like it was like they missed that mark where this should be a big fucking deal. But it didn't really feel like one. When I saw this in theaters, I remember this being like one of the most mm. devastating scenes of the movie. You Maybe got, that's just me. You got comedic out of it? Or like a supposed, like a purpose of comedy? It kind of just felt like that fast cut, quick resolution where mm. I felt the the significance of the situation didn't really get to sit in with the audience member because it immediately moves out to him just doing his thing that he's done the entire film, which is just run his fucking mouth. I think that if it gave you a time to relax, it would be out of character for the movie. I don't mean it in breathing room. I mean it in like, let this moment sink in, you fucking idiot Howard. (laughs) Like I wanted it to be like, a bigger deal for the characters and I felt like not seeing the immediate character reaction was a big and I'm not saying it wasn't a big deal like the fucking father-in-law is pissed as shit and then he immediately gets fucking beat up gets his nose punched I mean I think there are a few times where in these safety movies where I think that things move a little too fast but I think that's just characteristic of their style Mm. I didn't think about it too much it I was really, a little thing. Yeah, and I I get it. Like you you would want the moment to 
feel the devastation Mm -hmm. and it's like on to the next thing like all right but maybe it's just that howard doesn't give a fuck and it's meant to relay that howard doesn't mind fucking over his father-in-law it's just another small roadblock Mm -hmm. i mean this character is kind of used to this i love the editing in the auction scene and i read somewhere that the scene lasts about 120 seconds so like two minutes exactly and there's 90 camera cuts during this oh my god is there really so each cut only lasts about three seconds at the Mm. most and the cutting goes within the rhythm of the auctioneer's voice Ah. which i thought was very very cool that's so smart yeah i love some good editing hey you know what needs good editing the new obi-wan show (laughs) that show needs a lot it needs some help they should hire like vince gilligan or some shit to go work on that holy fuck there's a scene I want to talk about, but I'm having trouble remembering the exact context. It's when Damani goes back to the office and he's like digging into Howard's safe and he finds out that the Rolexes aren't there. I can't remember exactly where this is at, but so much chaotic shit is happening in the scene. This actually might be when, is this when KG returns the Opal? I think so. This is one of the most stress-filled, like, five to ten minutes I think I've ever seen The buzzer in the door doesn't work, man. God, the fucking buzzer, dude. And they use great sound design so much in this scene where you get the buzzing, the yelling, cell phones are ringing, people Mm -hmm. are banging on the glass, and you're, like, trying to follow dialogue throughout all this. Mm -hmm. This is that classic Safdie Brothers chaos that i love to see but that's like not even the end of the scene because after after kg returns the opal he asks for the ring back and then howard has to like give some bullshit excuse mm-hmm. kg and them leave and now damani is like pissed at howard for some reason so they go to the back room and they're arguing and the doctor calls about howard's <laughs> colon cancer yeah and i find this like darkly humorous in only the way sure. that, like, I could, that Howard might have, like, colon cancer, but... I forgot that the movie opens up with him getting a colonoscopy. We totally didn't even talk about that. Yeah, I is... fucking was like, what the shit? This is so fucking funny. We can bring it up, for sure. Howard's situation is so shitty that the relief of not having colon cancer means nothing uh-huh. right here. And he leaves the doctor on the phone because Damani's pouring shit into the fish tank... Pouring, like, vitamin water, like, red vitamin water into the fish tank. Uh-huh. That's a great fucking shot. Just the fact that they did that, like, watching this fucking red dye pour into this fish tank. The doctor's call just means nothing. And he's like, okay, doc, like, see you later. Like, shut the fuck up. Who, me, <laughs> Howard? No, not you. I feel like words can't even express how chaotic it is. Like, it's ten minutes of noise. And- and it's like, go put up some sort of pry tool into the drawer. It, it's so it's over the top, man. It's too many people talking. I feel like we had to sit here and dissect it. It would take like an hour to figure out everything that went on during that. Mm-hmm. But that pry tool is a big deal. There's it a, is. That pry tool stays there. We'll bring it back. But I cannot believe he makes the bet, dude. When I was mm-hmm. watching it for the first time, I didn't know where the story was going to go at the end. And watching it unfold in front of me... I was relieved, actually, believe it or not, because I was thinking to myself, this is how the story ends. This is the final. I didn't know how they were going to push it over the top. I was so confused as to 
okay, he's got the opal, he's got the money, everything's good, right? Nah. Nah. <laughs> no. This is actually my favorite scene in the movie. The collectors and Arno are in the building, and he gives Julia the money through the window of the office next door. Oh my god, it's one of the best runs of the end of a film I've ever seen. The plot of the movie is relatively loose for the first hour oh, yeah. and a half. And this is where like the pieces start coming together. Mm-hmm. This scene between KG and Sandler mm-hmm. is my favorite of the movie. This is how I win. I don't think the Safties like write the greatest dialogue in the world. This isn't like Tarantino and it's not poetic style. Mm-hmm. But this dialogue actually shifts topics and themes quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Where KG is questioning him about, man, Howard, like how much did you spend on this? Like how much did the, the Ethiopians get out of this? And Howard says, KG, do you want to want win by one point or fucking 30 points? Mm-hmm. And he starts bringing up the Vegas odds and the camera is like very subtly zooming in on his face during this and it gets the closest when he says you know what let's fucking bet on this man and that's when you get that revelation like oh oh god damn the problem could have been fixed right here but no and i really love that after kg leaves the office and the loan sharks come in Howard is almost, ex- he's like ecstatic to tell them about the bet, even though they want the money and they want to uh-huh. kill him. Because there's this weird music cue that comes in and it's kind of like, boom. And Howard walks up and says, you won't fucking believe this. Uh-huh. <laughs> and really, I bet they couldn't fucking believe it, you know? We didn't really talk about it too much, but Arno, I believe Arno is reluctant to hurt Howard. This is the first scene where you would be led to believe that. You get glimpses of it in the car when they're taking his clothes off and all that shit. He's trying to talk to Arno. One of the loan sharks is like, you don't talk to him, you talk to me. And he says, Howard, just do what they ask. And Arno's constantly walking away from him when they leave the auction and one of the loan sharks punches him in the face. It's almost like Arno doesn't want anything to do with Howard, and it's actually the loan sharks that are more fed up with him. Yeah, well, they've been hired to do a job. Yeah. I'd assume that jobs prior to this for them have never been this Uh hard. I just, I noticed that it felt like Arno in that car scene was, like, he felt like he didn't have good control over the sharks. I think he was over his head, or Mm -hmm. in over his head. This actor that plays Arno, he doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue in the movie. I think he acts primarily through his eyes, mm-hmm. which I think is very commendable yep. because you can read his facial expressions like pretty well. I think that's a hard thing to do. Uh, we'll get to the we'll get to the end eventually, but yeah, I wanted to probe that in for later. But man, this last thirty minutes is a great fucking run. It's some of the the most intense shit. He puts her on a helicopter. She rides a helicopter with some big wig that's just talking her ear off. This Trump-looking guy. <laughs> he's got the bad tan and like the, he, the like, toupee. He looks like the guy that goes on like safari hunts. Like he goes and shoots lions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's, he's just a sad old man that has no one to share his money with, according to him. And uh, She probably would have been better off going with this guy. I'm led to believe that she will eventually, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, the ending of the movie leaves a lot of hope for Julia. Julia will find her another sugar daddy. 
I love that like this character like just non character gets established way late in the game and plays like such a pivotal role in like this final conflict where she's evading the loan sharks after putting in the bet. He becomes like a safe house, quite literally into the penthouse suite of wherever this is at at this casino. And I found that shit pretty ballsy to like be able to shoehorn that in like just this random character at the end of a film basically i found it to come across very naturally Mm -hmm, for sure and it like fit within the chaos for sure oh my god dude him having basically them hostage in between like this breezeway you know the double glass doors there's two checkpoints there's a, a door and another buzzing door because the metal falls out the tool holding the door buzzer open for use falls out and they can't he cannot buzz them out and he makes them watch game 7 man that's dope as fuck to me like they they were able to help create that situation that's tight fucking writing dude that is like top notch using this pre-established problem to the advantage of our main character to hold them hostage to make them watch this basketball game that they've got money riding on. And a great majority of like a 15 minute span is just Howard reacting to this game that took place like in our time right now of June 2022 is like 10 years old and like wouldn't it be a shock to anybody. Mm-hmm. It's just fun seeing Howard be so like orgasmic about like the rea- his reactions to the game. It's how he lives. It's how he like stays alive, like feels alive inside. He's an adrenaline junkie. And I love how there's like kind of like short time lapses throughout the movie where they cut to Arno and the Lone Sharks and they look very sweaty and beaten down. And like maybe 30 seconds of screen time have passed, but you know, in movie, it's probably been like five hours. And you know, those little in between ways usually aren't air conditioned. So they're just sitting in this like heat for so long. And you know that that main loan shark guy is just thinking, yeah, like he's had enough, dude. And I love when he says to Sandler, are you having fun? And Sandler like deadpans and just goes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's the weirdest line delivery and I fucking love it. I will just preface that I felt absolutely disgusting after the end of this film. And I think you told me that. I think you said a while back or just in other comments that we've made during during other movies or maybe you're watching Good Time. You'll want to take a shower. I did in a, a more of like a metaphorical way. <laughs> I finished the film. I was eating blueberries and strawberries and... I took my my dirty bowls back downstairs. I put them in the dishwasher. I put on a pair of jeans and a hat and put on my tennis shoes. And without a word, I walked out of my house, didn't let anyone know where I was going. I got in my car and I drove to Kroger to get a bite to eat. And I was just sitting there thinking, I can't believe that just fucking happened. And when I went to sleep last night, the last thing that I remember thinking about was this ending scene. (laughs) Like, the scene played back in my head, and I felt disgusting when I was falling asleep last night. I have never shown that much emotion while watching a film. I went, (gasps) Yeah, you should have seen the theater that I was in. People threw up their hands. Like, people were reacting so viciously to to that scene. 
where people were throwing up their hands and putting their hands like in their eyes and stuff. I had the same reaction. Oh my too. god, dude! It fucking it got me, man. Like it got me good. They fake you out with the normal Hollywood kind of ending, and the soundtrack lightens the fuck up. Do you remember how the soundtrack oh, I lightens do. up? It's burnt into my memory, dude. And what happens to be the most chaotic part of the film, it's the lightest, most beautiful music you've ever heard to watching Howard get shot in the face and Arno getting shot in the face. God, it's so devastating, man. Because when Howard wins the big one, oh my God. they give you the reaction shot of Arno and he stands up in disbelief. Like he actually did it. I think he says... He actually did it. He looks like he almost respects uh-huh. Howard in a way. Like he wish he would have listened to him the first time when he placed the bet. Shit, if they wouldn't have canceled that first bet, he'd have made it. It'd have been over. None of this would have happened. It's it's crazy that they give you that fake out happy moment and they cut you down in about twenty seconds. Mm-hmm. It is so immediate. That shit fucking broke me, dude. In the theater, like I literally felt my heart sink. I think it it might be one of the most devastating movie endings that I can remember. I will say I love the way the film ends too, where it pulls in and zooms in on his bullet hole and it goes through the bullet hole and it's a complete motif to when the original opal is held in the hand and it zooms deep into the opal and you get like this almost galaxy. And then I think it pulls out into the colonoscopy and all that shit. It's hilarious. And we didn't talk about that shit, but I think that transition was like genius Mm -hmm. almost. Oh my God. It felt like a perfect little loop. Yeah, dude. And you're getting like all the celebration cuts Uh or celebration shots of Damani. He's hanging out because, you know, Mm -hmm. he got his 10 grand from the opal sale. And Mm -hmm. that's a big win for him. Mm -hmm. Julia cashed out. Did you feel like the movie kind of gave you a red hearing with the rich guy carrying the money bags out with all like the the thugs dressed up in black at the end? Like, I thought she was going to take the money with him. I kind of thought that like he was on the payroll oh, with, yeah. with the loan I got sharks. that little bit of, that ran across my mind real fast too. Yeah, that's what I thought when I first saw the movie too. But of course like she gets the happy ending, which is really weird. I don't really feel like anyone wins. It like cuts to the wife during the celebration montage where she's like, he was naked in the back of the Mercedes. Like, I'm calling the police. Uh-huh. Which kind of makes me wonder about the circumstances after the credits roll. The Lone Sharks did shoot Arno and Howard, but the buzzer door is broken. Have you thought about this? Mm. Where they, they're busting up the jewelry shop and taking all this the shit in there. And I kind of get the vibe that like they may not be able to get out. Mm. And his wife has called the police. So they're probably just going to get mm-hmm. bagged anyways. So it's like kind of all for nothing. I heard your brother mention that. Well, like they just robbed a jewelry store. It's all on camera and stuff. That too. But I, in the dialogue of the loan shark is, find anything with the camera, smash it. You find any tapes, you grab that shit, you break everything. I think they're trapped in there. They probably are. Only Howard knew how to like get the buzzer door open. Uh-huh. Yeah, man, it's and it's such a a situation that didn't have to happen and it was like this immediate impulse made by that one character that ruins everything for everyone. And not to men- or not to say that like the situation wasn't already way out of control. Dude, it did feel like Howard's going to it's he's going to get out of it, man. 
his life may be still fucked up. His wife hates him and his kids might hate him now, but at least he's got a million bucks or whatever and a hot girlfriend. But the film really does play into your emotions because it feels like that win and you're still digesting that win. After and it's already been lost. And Well, <laughs> I just mean like in that moment before he gets shot, your brain does not have enough time to process what's going to happen next. Yeah. And then that shit gets ripped out from underneath you so fast. It's such great writing because it completely goes against the grain of like what you are to expect. And it's really fucking smart. I don't ever want to watch this film ever again. It fucked me. I feel like it would be easier on the second go around for sure since I know what's going to happen. Oh, it is. But it, it, that shit destroyed me as a first time watch. It destroyed me. It was so good. Oh my God. It just, I feel pain after watching it though. It just makes me feel so greasy and gross. And that's the shit that you like, you fucked up piece of shit. What's wrong with you? I love movies like <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah, you do. God damn it. I told you uh, at work, I said, you know, I really feel like I need you here to watch it with me, to like hold my hand, like how mm-hmm. you did during good time. Because during good time, I, I, I kept saying, no. <laughs> no dude and you go yeah dude he's a fucking piece of shit bro <laughs> there's been a few times in the last months where after we recorded certain podcast episodes you would say maybe we could watch uncut gems tonight mm-hmm. and i was in a way kind of holding you off mm-hmm. on that because i knew i was going to recommend it eventually i didn't want to watch it together i mm. wanted to be able to talk about it together yeah so rightfully done good job yeah Proud of you. I'm, I'm glad that we were able to do this holy shit dude i can't believe it oh, i don't know if this movie tops good time for me they're very similar but i think they achieve their their goals a lot differently and it's like the only thing i have to compare it to because it's such a niche storytelling technique where i just feel like i don't really have much to compare it to you've never seen another movie quite like good time and uncut gems Mm -hmm. right nope i can't name one off the top of my head at least you know i think in good time the end of that film felt a lot more gratifying and i love him being in the backseat and letting that shit sink in i think that's like one of the most powerful uh film moments i've felt and in this movie i i felt so shell-shocked and so dumbfounded i just i couldn't believe it but like i don't know how else it would have (laughs) ended yeah like i truly think howard needed to die you knew that if he got that million dollars none of it would have ever gone to arno the cycle would have repeated my friend it would have been on to the next big win the bigger win and i think that last few moments of just staring at his corpse on the ground was like this was the only way out i've seen people compare this ending not comparing but saying this ending is a happy ending for howard i was just about to bring that up because i don't think it was really about the money for him i think it was about the high it was about the win this is how he wins the win the adrenaline that he gets from doing this howard died a happy man Yeah, He was going to get his million dollars, go have great sex, and ride off into the sunset until the next chaotic event erupts. Uh Uh-huh. Howard died in the moment that he was chasing, and I think that's really important for his character. Absolutely. But as an audience member, it was rough to watch, (laughs) truly. Like, it (laughs) fucked me up, man. God, it fucked me up. 
it felt so right and so fucking wrong at the same time. And that's great. And that's awesome. And I think that speaks for itself. As an audience member, that's what you seek. Yeah, man, I want to be blown away when I watch a film. And I think uh, I think these two guys are really on to something when it comes to their careers. And I'm super hyped to see whatever they have next, you know? Their next project, uh, apparently, has Adam Sandler tied to it again. Good. <laughs> like, yeah, Good. I'm down for this. Bring this guy back to legendary status. Like, he's fall into like this meme category he like needs that fucking respect put back on his name dude saying there's a talented individual and i think he just needs to sign off on more artistic endeavors and less about paychecks and like he's gonna get paid he just needs to do it in a more meaningful way you know as of this recording right now over the weekend a new netflix movie dropped with him i've heard it. about that we were talking about it when we were at the uh, lock of media it's also a basketball themed movie yeah and it's got like over a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes right I, now. What, what's it called? It's uh, called Hustle. Hustle. That's right. So maybe maybe he's got something going right now, man. He, he's kind of on a streak. I, I, I think he's very aware, too. I watched him like had a 60-minute interview. And I think he was... Uh, I think he was very aware that people grown to like view him as like a joke. And I think he's like reclaiming that status again of like, yeah, I still got it. I think he also plays into... Just that like New York, Brooklyn role a lot as well. And I know like he's super passionate about basketball and like I'm sure this was really fun for him too. like to to this film to be so closely tied to basketball. And like obviously it's New York. Adam Sandler needs like he needs those kind of roles because I think he's like super passionate. The guy still fucking plays basketball at like local parks near where he lives and shit. Like the guy he does loves basketball. Yeah, man, I'm super excited for what they have going next. I'll say that this movie is a 10 out of 10. It's the first time I've given a 10 out of 10 in a long time. Probably since The Lighthouse, yeah. if I had to guess. I think so. I might have only given one or two since then. I think I gave The Thing a 10. I think That's I, crazy. <laughs> I think I gave Tatan like a near 10. I think we both did. I think got close to a 9. Like, yeah. Right? Yeah, man. This movie's going to stick with me for a long time, and that's super important. I'm very surprised that you gave this a 10 out of 10. It wasn't like a pleasant 10 out of 10. Like it wasn't <laughs> like uh, I'm not proud to have seen this film now. Like I feel gross and dirty because of it. But yeah, man. Okay. Well, thank God because I was a little stressed out about my rating. When I saw this in theaters in 2019, in my head, I gave it like an 8 out of 10. Mm -hmm. The three watches that I had afterwards, I've appreciated the movie so much more each time. I'm also going to give it a 10 out of 10. Oh, yeah. I think Good Time is also a 10 out of 10. I think the Safdie brothers are such a promising young group of directors. Just knowing that we live in a time where we're going to just keep seeing movies by them every couple mm -hmm. of years is very exciting to me. And I didn't even bring up like the way that Jewish culture, culture mm -hmm. is brought into this movie mm -hmm. and how like personal it is to the Safties because their dad worked in the Diamond District. Oh, for real? Howard was based off of a guy that was the boss of their dad. Oh, shit. Yeah, and I forgot to sprinkle that in earlier. But yeah, I, I'm thinking a 10 out of 10 for this movie, man. It's something that you'll never forget. I'll never forget that feeling that I just had at the end of that film. Like, I'll never forget that shit. Totally, man. You're seeing an actor that was previously known as a joke become something... So much more in a way where, like, about 40 minutes in, I forgot that it was Sandler. Oh, yeah, completely. You know what I mean? Didn't even, didn't even cross my mind after the first few moments of the, of the film. Piss break. 
Okay, I have a really fun recommendation for you. A fun recommendation? Okay, yeah, lay on. it on me, brother. I was going to go light-handed on you and, like, make things easy. I thought about doing Beauty and the Beast, like, the original animated film, because oh, I just wow. watched it during Locking Media. I thought about doing that, and then I watched, like, the thir- first 40 minutes of it today, and it's only, like, an hour and a half long, and I was like, ah, we just blow through that too fast, and it's, everybody knows Beauty and the Beast, <laughs> and... Wouldn't be, like, good podcast material. Yeah, I just felt like it would be... A little bit of a waste, even though I think there would be great things to talk about, especially animation-wise. But I'm going to do uh, something more fun. We're going to do our first superhero movie. Is that right? We've never done a superhero movie on the podcast? I guess Suicide Squad was a super villain movie. That doesn't count. Don't even bring it close. It's like not even a movie. Uh, (laughs) It's a trailer for, for a movie that was supposed to come out. Uh, so we're going to do, uh, but a, a really cool superhero movie. Uh, we're going to do um, Logan. We're going to do Logan. Ah, dude. Fuck yeah, man. So I didn't know what I was going to do today. And then I had been thinking about it for a, a couple of days. And you told me the other day, you said, uh, I think Logan's going to come over and hang out with us before we do the podcast. I mean, he did. He did come tonight. And I was like, eh, that's all I needed to know. I figured it out. Like, <laughs> that's sorry. I'm like, that's, it must be destined to be the podcast topic because I was so reluctant to do it. I, I, did, I didn't know if I could take it that way or we should do it. We'll talk about it. I, I, obviously, we'll talk about it. But uh, off the air, <laughs> I think I want to I watch this one quite a few times. But I also think we should watch the noir version of it as well. Just Wait, for hold fun. on. Excuse me? Did Why I, did I not tell you about this? The what? I think I talk, I think I told you once, but this movie has a black and white cut for the film, and it's one of the featurettes. I have this film on Vudu, but I also have it on Blu-ray, so you can have a physical copy to watch if you don't already own it somewhere. I think I might already own it. But regardless <laughs> of the fact, we should watch the black and white version as well if we have time. If we can I get will there, absolutely yeah. watch the black and white version. Is it a, is it a different cut? I believe it's the same film, just black and white. It's a it's a noir cut of the film, and I actually started a little bit of it today just to like take a peek. Yeah, man, it'll be cool. I feel like black and white really helps showcase like some really cool moments that happen. Like even the opening scene in black and white was cool as shit. I felt like I really could pick up on movement a lot. Excuse me, I could pick up on movement a lot better. But anyway, we'll talk about it during the podcast. It's gory as fuck. It's good as fuck. Uh, I know we've both seen it, but I haven't seen it in years since like it first came out. Um, 2017? I believe so. Yep. So it's five years old now. Yeah, man. It'll be super... I'm super hyped to talk about it. You'll laugh your ass off because you love watching people get their throats slit open. <laughs> like, it'll be a good time. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, until then... I'm going to get out of here and we're going to uh, continue the party. Uh, but until then, uh, if you could sign these, uh, sign these guys out, I appreciate it. Adios.